Which are the dirtiest ships on the water today, and how can we make them cleaner? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. There are more than 76,000 commercial vessels in service today. Wouldn't it be helpful to know how they stack up with regard to their impact on the environment? Such a resource exists today. It's called shippingefficiency.org, and it was launched in 2010 as a rating database for vessel emissions. It's part of a larger effort called the Carbon War Room, started by Virgin Group CEO Richard Branson in 2009 as a way for private industry to do something about climate change. The idea was to identify market barriers that are preventing solutions from being deployed in various business sectors. Shippingefficiency.org is targeting the ship side of the equation, which is responsible for more than a billion tons of CO2 emissions each year. The initiative not only rates each ship's output, but recommends ways to reduce it through retrofits, new vessel designs, alternative fuels, and other innovative techniques. Today, we'll learn about how it all can work in my conversation with senior associate Victoria Stulgis. She reveals how vessel owners can save up to 30% on operating costs with less than a five-year payback and achieve $70 billion in fuel savings by the year 2030. So here is my conversation with Victoria Stulgis. Victoria Stulgis, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on today, Bob. Victoria, what is ShippingEfficiency.org? ShippingEfficiency.org is an initiative launched by the Carbon Warum, and the focus is on how we can work with the shipping industry to increase the efficiency of the existing commercial shipping and fleet, taking advantage of the fuel cost savings and carbon savings that can benefit both the industry and the environment. Okay, that requires us to back up a little bit and tell us what the Carbon War Room is. Sure. So the Carbon War Room is a nonprofit founded by Sir Richard Branson back in 2009, along with uh, a group of other entrepreneurs who wanted to focus on what the private industry could do to address climate change and what profitable solutions existed today within the existing policy and with technologies that already exist. So our focus of the Carbon Warum was really to look at different sectors where there are profitable technologies and solutions, but where we think there are market barriers preventing these technologies and solutions from being deployed at scale. And way back in 2009, when we were starting to look at things and, and, and everything at the COP15 in Copenhagen was hung up in policy, we said, where are the industries? that can take advantage of profitable technologies today. And shipping was the first industry or sector we looked at. The shipping industry, just to give you a brief overview, is an industry that emits over 1 billion tons of CO2. Right now, that presents about 2% of global CO2, but by 2050, they're thinking that could become 17% of the problem. Um, But it's also an industry that does have 
a huge latent efficiency, so profitable technologies that can be retrofitted onto existing vessels that can save up to 30% profitably with less than a five-year payback. So it was a perfect fit for us where we saw that there were market barriers preventing these technologies from being deployed at scale, but that the technologies existed and we could work with the industry within the existing policy to really accelerate the uptake of these technologies. So shippingefficiency.org was created, did you say 2009? It was launched in um, 2010 at uh, COP16 in Cancun. Does it draw on the resources of a lot of private interests, uh, ship designers, carriers, shippers, and, and the like, or does it have its own staff of experts? What exactly does it consist of? So what we did with shippingefficiency.org, kind of bringing it back to the two market barriers that we went out and asked the industry, what are the market barriers preventing these technologies from being installed? And we came back with two main barriers, the first being it is uh, a lack of information and transparency about how efficient vessels are designed. So it's very hard for um, stakeholders in the industry to tell a more efficient ship from a less efficient ship. And the second uh, barrier being a split incentive. So the owner who owns the ship, owns the asset, doesn't have the incentive to invest in the technologies because um, they are not the ones paying the fuel costs. Um, so those were the two market barriers we heard about. And in the shipping industry, um, you have uh, the charterers, which are these major oil and gas companies or metal mining com- metal and mining companies, agricultural commodities producers, who are the ones leasing ships to ship their cargoes worldwide. So shippingefficiency.org was set out as a tool mainly for the major charterers in the industry so that when they're going to select a ship, and about 70% of the time they are paying the fuel costs, they can be able to tell a more energy-efficient ship from a less efficient one. Do you work also with naval architects? Uh, We don't in particular. Um, So, I mean, our strategy is set up so that the first thing we have is shippingefficiency.org, which is this rating database. So anyone can go online and Google a vessel by its IMO number or its name and see how efficiently it's ranked uh, relative to its peers. Um, It uses a complex algorithm that is tied to the UN body for shipping, the IMO. So that's kind of the first phase of our strategy is get this information online. Once the information is out there, we work with major industry stakeholders to get them to use the efficiency information and basically create a demand for more efficient vessels. Um, And then the last thing we've done is to work to see how we can get more of these retrofit projects going working in particular on getting more finance available to fund these retrofits. Um, so the naval architects are out there, and, and they are definitely consulted when these retrofit projects um, are pursued and when new build vessels are going on. But I'd say we're mainly focused on working with different stakeholders, being the charterers. Uh, we do work a lot with some of the technology companies, working with ship financiers um, and other industry stakeholders, ship owners, um, on putting these projects together. So you're starting with the idea of making better use of the ships that are in existence today and emphasizing those ships that are most uh, that are greener, the greenest, so to speak, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So most vessels will be on the water for about 30 years, and there's new policy that was introduced a few years back that will have minimum design standards for new-build vessels. So all the new-build vessels coming online are um, increasingly efficient and and hitting targets and taking advantage of the opportunities today for for these new technologies. 
and the new designs, uh, which we're seeing are, you know, kind of incredibly more efficient than vessels built even three or four years ago. But the existing vessels, there's about 70,000 of them. Uh, so there's this, and they're going to be on the water emitting CO2 and burning more fuel than they need to be for, you know, in, in some cases as long as another 30 years. Um, so that's where we see the opportunity to get these carbon and, and fuel saving gains. But that's not to say that there isn't more that can be done with the new build vessels. We've seen that these uh, new vessels can be can meet these minimum design standards just in terms of kind of optimizing the hull with the engine and the propeller for the vessel's operating conditions. So we have yet to see some of these cool new technologies um, like some of the modern wind systems and these air bubble systems where you can blow a carpet of bubbles under the hull to reduce the friction. We've yet to see some of these really promising technologies that can deliver really significant fuel savings gains uh, really have any uptake. When you launched, did you come up with any type of hard number in terms of a goal for reduction of carbon emissions by ships by a certain date? Yes, certainly. Um, I mean, I think uh, one of the goals we have is that the industry can save $70 billion a year on fuel by 2030. And the $70 billion was taken when fuel prices were probably double what they are now. But that was getting to a, a vessels being 30% more efficient than they are now. $70 billion is a pretty impressive number. <laughs> That's, uh, it is, yes. Yeah. There's a lot of money in shipping. What are the most promising near-future areas of improvement to ships? You just you just cite a, a bunch or a few of them just now. I wonder what where are you focusing your initial efforts on the so-called low-hanging fruit where we can immediately start to see improvements in vessel emissions? Right now, we're looking at the container industry as well as the bulk and tanker vessels. And with the container fleet, for example, um, the low-hanging fruit is mainly around uh, redesigning the bulbous bow, which is on the bow of the ship, where they call it kind of doing a nose job because these vessels were actually built to sail at much higher speeds than they are right now. And they were built to go at about 25 plus knots, and they're, they're sailing some of them at you know 16 knots. So it's everything from adjusting the bow to also kind of depowering the engine to be able to meet the new operating conditions, which is the slow steaming. So those are kind of two of the most low-hanging fruits. But there's also premium paint technologies that exist, new propellers. There are appendages and ducts you can sit on the end of the propeller, things like Neva ducts and propeller boss capstans, new rudders. These are all technologies that are proven, have been installed on, you know, kind of a couple hundred, if not thousands of vessels. And the paybacks you're looking at are, depending on fuel prices, two years to five years. So that's the, the low-hanging fruit. And, and as I mentioned, there's kind of then, if you look out a bit further, there's things like the air bubbles and the wind system, least heat recovery as well. Well, there's certainly some advantage on the slowing down of the ship since they're already slowing down for economic reasons. So I guess that dovetails very nicely with your efforts, does it not? Exactly, yeah. And, and slow steaming, you know, there's been a lot of, we're not focused on policy, but some of the NGOs that have said that, you know, the easiest way to reduce emissions and costs from shipping is to introduce a global speeding cap, which you can imagine would be high to, hard to enforce on the high seas. But Yes, uh, slowing down 
a vessel, um, there can be significant gains in fuel consumption by slowing down a vessel just one or two knots. And that's because fuel consumption and, and speed, there's a cubic relationship. So there's um, incredible savings to be gained. And a lot of the major container lines, such as Maersk, have adopted a slow steaming policy to really take advantage of those fuel savings available from just slowing down. You describe the redesign of the bow as being among the low-hanging fruit, but I would imagine that would be a pretty expensive proposition per ship, is it not? Do you have any idea how much that costs? Yes, yeah, certainly. So um, a ship goes into dry dock every five years for routine maintenance. It's required. And normally at the dry dock, it will just have its routine maintenance done, and they'll repaint the hull. So all of the vessels that we're looking at, the low-hanging fruit, the really the only kind of time to take advantage of doing those low-hanging fruit opportunities is when the vessel is already going into its regularly scheduled dry dock, which you can imagine comes at a cost not just to come into the yard, but also to take the vessel off water, that the opportunity cost of time. So we are only looking at doing it um, when the vessel is already scheduled to come off. And a typical vessel that we're looking at retrofitting, the cost, depending on the size of the vessel, to do kind of three to five of these technologies, looking at getting a 10 to 15% fuel saving, is going to be anywhere from just over a million to $3 million, um, with, again, the, the payback normally being saved within three to five years. So the bulbous bow, it sounds like a very intensive project. It doesn't come at, at too high of a cost, actually. And, and with the container ships, we've actually seen one really interesting project by a ship owner, a ship management company called NSB, where they actually widened the ship so that it can carry more containers. So it didn't necessarily improve that vessel fuel consumption, but the CO2 per container and the fuel per container went down significantly. And that, as, as you can imagine, it was quite an, an undertaking in terms of having to widen the ship. Well, for a long time, it's been a fairly common practice to lengthen a ship, to cut it in half and stick a new midsection in. I had not heard about the widening part of it. I guess, is that becoming more common, or was this just sort of an unusual thing that we might see more of in the future? Yeah, this was um, a project that they announced this year. Um, It's been seen as incredibly successful, and um, I think in particular taking advantage of some of the canals and the ability to go through some of these canals that are widening. Um, was one of the rationales behind it, and also just that the this type and size of ship, when they were able to widen it, is one that is kind of a hot kind of commodity on the market right now in terms of the trading patterns that we've seen. So I think it was definitely seen as incredibly innovative. I think that ship management company is already looking at some projects for some of the the vessels they manage, and um, I think we will definitely see more owners taking on that project in the future. They certainly saw saw the return quite immediately. What about fuel options? Are there cleaner fuels out there that can be applied to commercial vessels today, especially on the container side? There are, yeah. So carbon warum, you can imagine where carbon is our name, not sulfur or NOx or SOx, we're not the sulfur war room, but you can imagine the heavy fuel, which is the fuel burned by ships, is the dirtiest fuel uh, at the bottom of the barrel. It's kind of the next closest thing to tar. And there has been, there are huge air quality and air pollutant issues with the heavy fuel oil that is burned by ships today. So there has been regulation pushed by the U.S. and Northern Europe that within 200 miles of those coastlines, you have to burn low sulfur 
quality fuel, um, which can just be distillates or it can be LNG, natural liquefied natural gas. Um, there's other fuels available, but in terms of kind of availability right now, distillates are, are the fuel that people are using that's cleaner. It doesn't come with any carbon benefit and it has a cost premium. LNG is definitely the shipping industry has said it's kind of the, the fuel of the future. Um, as you can imagine, establishing a bunkering and infrastructure for liquefied natural gas. It's something that's developing and is not quite ready. So right now there are some owners who'd said, who would say, I would put LNG in my ships right now if I could, but there's no infrastructure. And this requires a conversion to a dual fuel engine. So right now, most of the ships on the water could not burn LNG. Um, they could burn distillates and they could burn drop-in biofuels. Uh, with fuel prices as they are so low right now, it's looking like HFO and the distillates are kind of those main fuels. But certainly, you know, there's talk of methanol as a potential future fuel for shipping. And we've certainly seen a lot of investment, in particular from the EU, in developing an LNG infrastructure. Um, and that's kind of where, where all the signs look to be pointing in terms of the fuel of the future for the U.S. From Carbon Warren's perspective, we're less focused on that, again, because we really have that pure efficiency focus where there's profitable, where the technology can be profitable, and LNG right now is, is not. But LNG certainly is cleaner than, than HFO. Um, there are some issues around methane slippage in terms of looking at the total climate benefits of LNG, but the uh, air pollution benefits are undisputable with LNG versus what, what ships are currently burning today. In the short term, as for those ships that are able to switch to a cleaner burning fuel within X number of miles of, of a shoreline or a port because of the regulations that have been imposed, why not just use that fuel for the entire voyage? Is that an economic consideration? Yeah, so right now, these cleaner fuels, the distillates, um, they call them like low sulfur fuel oil, marine gas oil uh, is one of them, MGO. They come at a premium. So um, they're basically, these these are fuels that are refined further at the refineries from HFO. And, and the sulfur is scrubbed out of the fuel at the refinery. So they do come at a cost premium at about 200 to 300 in, in some markets, $400 a ton more and heavy fuel oil. So it's purely economic that they're not burning them over the entire journey. Um, but yeah. it's easy enough for them to have, you know, two fuel tanks on their vessel. It's easy enough for them to have just enough low sulfur fuel oil to burn within within the coast. Now, I'm sure you know the big news with container ships these days is that they just keep getting bigger and bigger. They're now up to about 18,000 20-foot equivalent units, and we see some 22,000 uh, TEU ships on the, on the uh, design boards at the moment. Is this a good thing or a bad thing, a positive or a negative for cutting carbon emissions? Yeah, I think it all depends on um, kind of the, the future of trade and, and looking at how many vessels are going from, you know, kind of Shanghai to L.A., completely full. If you look at a fully utilized Maersk Tripoli vessel that can, can carry 18,000, 20,000 containers, if it's completely full from a carbon and cost perspective, it makes complete economic sense. But I think the jury's still out on the capacity factor and the utilization of a lot of these new massive vessels on the water. Um, in particular, 
Maris, who, you know, launched the first biggest vessels in the world, the Triple E's, recently announced that they had to lay up one of these new vessels that's incredibly efficient because there just wasn't the demand for it. So I think we have yet to see if these vessels are going to be fully optimized, if you'll have a full 20,000 TEU container vessel shipping from Shanghai then to L.A., and then you have smaller vessels taking all the containers from L.A. to the, the ports around it where those cargoes eventually need to get to. One of the major issues is that these bigger vessels can really only call at a few ports. So a lot of the ports do have to expand their berthing space to be able to fit these massive vessels. And they, of course, need incredibly deep water. So I think the jury's still out. But um, if things work out, yeah, I mean, these new vessels are incredibly efficient if you look at them on a CO2 per container basis. And, and Maersk is definitely building them with the top-of-the-line technologies. What progress have you seen in terms of receptivity by the private sector, the carriers, the shippers, the charterers and the like, the designers? Are they open to your message? Are they cooperating or is there still some work to be done in that area? Yeah, they definitely are. So we mainly focus on these oil and gas companies, these metal and mining companies and the agricultural commodities producers who will lease an entire ship to ship their cargoes. Uh, they just have a much stronger say over over which ship they can use. But we've worked with these companies through one of our partners, Right Ship. They do ship vetting. So a lot of these major companies will already use Right Ship uh, when they're trying to select which vessel to make sure that they're going to get a vessel that, that won't isn't at risk of having a ship casualty or an accident. And so we've worked with them to basically say when they're procuring a vessel, Cargill, for example, BHP Billiton, Rio Tinto, Hess, Saudi Aramco, when they go to select a vessel, they already have this criteria. They don't want a vessel over 15 years of age. They don't want a vessel that's had any kind of casualties or accidents. And when they go into select a vessel, they now also say, I won't use F or G rated vessels. So that's the rating scheme that you can visit on shippingefficiency.org, which sends an incredibly strong signal to the market and to ship owners that if you have one of the worst performing vessels, it's unlikely to be hiring. And so we've worked with 36 of these major companies. They represent 20% of global ship's tonnage. Um, so they're pretty big names, and they're transporting a lot of cargo all over the world. It's about 2 billion tons of cargo that they're shipping around the world, 26,000 vessels moving annually. And they are all ones that will have a policy in place to exclude inefficient vessels from their supply chain. So we've seen that market moving. And again, it's because right now it's a, it's a charters, it's a customer's market. There's an oversupply of vessels right now. So these, these charters have choice. And it's really about working with them to demonstrate to them that they do have choice and that it makes financial sense for them to do it, particularly when they're paying the fuel bill the majority of the time. The container industry is a bit different. Um, and it's interesting because the container industry, you're going to have the major shippers like Ikea and Walmart. You know, they are the big brand names and the connection to the consumer, but they don't have nearly as much power over which ships their cargoes, their containers end up on. There is a great industry initiative out there called the Clean Cargo Working Group, CCWG, which is an initiative of BSR, uh, a nonprofit, another nonprofit out there. And they are a members-based organization of the major container carriers and what we call the shippers, so being the Ikeas and the Walmarts and the Nikes of the world. And what they've done is amassed this members-based organization 
to get greater collaboration between the shippers and the carriers, and they collect data on an annual basis that demonstrates how efficient these different carriers are, so kind of ranks and compares them. Uh, They've got about 90% of the world's container carriers represented in their membership, and it allows then the shippers to see where Maersk is performing against CMA, CGM, and, and against a lot of the other competitors out there. And in particular, they can use that information then when they're choosing who to use for their services. But it's, it's incredibly hard to tell. You, know, you never know if your vessel might end up on a Maersk ship or a CMA, CGM ship because these, a lot of these container carriers operate in pools. And you don't have any choice over, you know, Maersk's most efficient ship from Maersk's less efficient ship. So it's a, it's a tougher nut to crack, but Clean Cargo Working Group is doing a really great job in terms of collecting incredibly high-quality data and making this data available to the shippers so that they can, you know, if they want to use that when they're choosing which carriers to use for, for shipping their goods. Well, it certainly sounds like progress is being made to some extent, and especially with the existence of shippingefficiency.org. It sounds like an excellent project and that people are starting to sit up and listen and maybe will have a great impact on vessel emissions going forward. I'm sorry that we're out of time, though, but I do want to thank you, Victoria Stolges, for being my guest on the show. Thanks very much for being with us. Great, and thanks for having me, Bob. That was my conversation with Victoria Stolges of ShippingEfficiency.org, talking about how commercial ships can become greener and more efficient. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.